Hello and welcome to the Aura of Greatness podcast, episode 1.15, Making Headlines. Last time we discussed the two early battles of the Cuban Revolution in the Battles of La Plata and Arroyo del Inferno, as well as the execution of Eutimio Guerra. Speaking of last time, that was a long time ago. I do apologize for the excessive weight between episodes. I do not really have an excuse, so I will just say that I'm sorry and that I plan to update more frequently going forward. In today's episode, we will discuss Fidel's interview with Herbert Matthews and the way the image of the rebels shifted after the publication of the New York Times article. To open the episode, I'm going to quote the first two sentences of Matthews' first article. Fidel Castro, the rebel leader of Cuba's youth, is alive and fighting hard and successfully in the rugged, almost impenetrable fastnesses of the Sierra Maestra at the southern tip of the island. President Fulgencio Batista has the cream of his army around the area, but the army men are fighting a thus far losing battle to destroy the most dangerous enemy General Batista has yet faced in a long and adventurous career as a Cuban leader and dictator. I know what you are thinking. That sounds exactly like the description I would have made based on what we have discussed over the past few episodes. Oh wait, that sounds way, way more optimistic for the rebels than we have thus far discussed. So why did Matthews think that Castro and the 26th of July movement was in such a powerful position? Let us resume our narrative to find out. February of 1957 was a momentous month for the rebels. We already discussed the execution of Vitimio Guerra, but the month also included the first face-to-face meeting of the National Directorate since Fidel's return, the Herbert Matthews interview, the article's publication, and the dissemination of Fidel's Appeal to the Cuban People manifesto. We briefly introduced the leader of the Santiago Armed Insurrection, Frank Paz, in episodes 1.12 and 1.13. Paz was the youngest member of the National Directorate at 22 years old, but he had been one of the first outside of Fidel's inner circle to pledge himself to the 26th of July movement, and his role as vice president of the Student Federation in the Oriente province made him a valuable member of the group. Paz had formed many independent cells throughout the city of Santiago to resist the rule of Batista, and he was one of the individuals who started the armed insurrection in Santiago that was supposed to coincide with the grandma's arrival. Today, the international airport in Hongwain, Cuba, is named after Paz. He was among the most important individuals of the early revolution, but unfortunately for him, Paz would not survive the year. He was killed on July 30, 1957, by Batista's soldiers. Two other prominent members of the National Directorate who arrived at the meeting were Celia Sanchez and Vilma Espin. These two would have a larger long-term impact on the movement and in the personal lives of the two Castros. Celia Sanchez was briefly introduced in episode 1.13. She was a leading coordinator of the Santiago Resistance and responsible for the local volunteers who had been sent to join Fidel's army. Her involvement in the movement dated back to the days following the failed Mancata barracks attack. She was one of the most vocal voices agitating for Fidel's release. She founded the Manzanillo chapter of the 26th of July movement to gather other supporters to Fidel's vision. She will come to be an incredibly vital piece of the war effort. As the conflict continued, she grew to be one of Fidel's closest friends and confidants. Ever since the early days of the armed revolution, there had been rumors that Fidel and Celia were more than close friends and that the relationship was that of intimate lovers. There is no evidence of such a relationship beyond the persistent rumors, and even after the war, the two never dignified the rumors with a response. Scholars still disagree on the exact nature of the relationship, but whether or not the two were having sex is immaterial to our story, 
so we won't mention it again. The National Directorate's first face-to-face meeting would also be the first meeting of Vilma Espin and Raul Castro. It was also the start of a long romance as the two would marry after the war and remain together until Vilma's death in 2007. The relationship with Raul, though, was the least of Espin's contributions to the revolution. Espin had joined the cause after meeting Frank Paz and soon assumed a leadership role. She used her talents and connections to be a messenger for the group. She was often responsible for the movement's most successful fundraising missions. Espin's father was a corporate lawyer for the Bacardi Corporation, one of the largest interests in Cuba. In addition to supplying the world with their famous Bacardi rum, the corporation was one of Fidel's main financial backers in the early days of the revolution. It was Espin who served as a liaison between the multinational corporation and the 26th of July movement. Later in the year, when it started to seem like Castro actually had a chance of to overthrow the Batista government, the United States grew more interested in the movement's motivations and intentions. A changing of the guard could be good for U.S. interests, so the Central Intelligence Agency sent General Lyman Kirkpatrick to investigate. A general in the CIA could not exactly walk into the Sierra Maestra and meet with a rebel leader in a friendly country, but he absolutely could go on a tour of the Bacardi Corporation's campus. At Bacardi, General Kirkpatrick was put into contact with Espen. Kirkpatrick grilled Espen, but she was able to successfully convince him that the 26th of July movement was a democratic and not a communist movement. This helped stop the CIA from considering Castro an enemy and kept the Bacardi Corporation on Castro's side. Both diplomatic victories were monumental pieces to the revolution's eventual success. Paz, Sanchez, and Espen represent the non-guerrilla wing of the 26th of July movement. Their contributions would help win the war of public opinion, while Castro and his men fought a war of survival in the mountains. For Che's part, he was not yet a member of the directorate and left out of the meeting. Between meetings, Che socialized with senior members of the directorate and was less than impressed with the national directorate's members. In his journal, he expressed doubt that they would be able to go to the extreme lengths that he knew would be necessary to win the war. He pointed to their middle-class upbringing and privileged educations as examples of the group's shackles to a bourgeois lifestyle that would preclude them from being a good Marxist. I personally read his comments about Pa, Sanchez, and Espen as potentially coming from a place of frustration and jealousy. Che was not high enough in the organization to be invited to national directorate's meetings, and Che's personality made him believe that only people as committed to the Marxist cause as he was could possibly lead the movement to victory. After all, if a middle-class upbringing and a privileged education precluded someone from being a good Marxist, then what does that say about Dr. Guevara and the lawyer Fidel Castro? During the National Directorate meeting, general strategy was discussed for the rebellion, but of equal importance was the war of public opinion. Batista had spread rumors that Fidel had died in the fighting, and the people of Cuba had little reason to support Fidel at this early juncture. It was decided that Fidel would pen an appeal to the Cuban people and give an interview to an American reporter. When Fidel Castro died in November of 2016, the New York Times published an obituary that briefly recounted the life of the Cuban revolutionary who defied the U.S. The obituary describes the articles that came from the interview in the following way. Newspapers around the world reported Fidel's death in the December 1956 landing. But three months later, Mr. Castro was interviewed for a series of articles that would revive his movement and thus change history. 
It should be noted that the obituary and the original articles were both published in the New York Times, so it is possible the obituary was slightly hyperbolic to increase its own importance, but even outside the Times, the Herbert Matthews interview is pointed to as the turning point in the revolution. It was the little squirt of lighter fluid that ignited the slowly dying coals of Castro's revolution. A 1984 issue of the academic journal The Historian featured an article by Richard E. Welch Jr. titled Herbert L. Matthews and the Cuban Revolution. One line of note reads as follows. The Cuban president and dictator, Fulgencio Batista, had been insisting that the 26th of July movement had been crushed and Castro killed, but the three-part report that appeared in the New York Times proved Batista a liar, gave new hope to the underground opposition in the cities, and indirectly assisted the guerrillas of the Sierra Maestra to gain arms and recruits. The Cuban revolutionaries fully agreed with the notion that the articles were vital to their success. In January of 1958, not even a year after the publication and a full year before their victory, Jay had this to say about Matthews' articles. When the world had given us up for dead, the interview with Matthews put the lie to our disappearance. Over the past few episodes, we have discussed the many hardships the 26th of July movement had faced since the grandma had launched. The publication was not some magical remedy or cure-all drug, but it did breathe new life into the movement. The three articles published in the Times from February 24th to 26th, 1957, confirmed that Fidel was not only alive, but due to some slight deceptions, claimed that Fidel was in a very strong position. Fidel had arranged the meeting and dressed his camp to make it appear that his force was several times larger than it was, and his charismatic words won Matthews over to his side. Critically, Castro also vehemently denied that his movement was a communist movement. Instead, he championed ideals that any Cuban could believe in and any American would feel comfortable allowing to mature. Here are two excerpts from the first Matthews article. Castro has strong ideas of liberty, democracy, social justice, the need to restore the Constitution, to hold elections. In regards to the United States, Castro is quoted as saying, you can be sure that we have no animosity toward the United States and the American people. The subsequent articles continued in much the same way. They depicted Castro as a strong leader who was an idealist and only wanted what was best for the Cuban people. After the articles were published, Che commented that the articles were greater than any military victory they had achieved to that point, because they not only proved that Fidel still lived, but presented him in such a positive light that people wanted to join his movement. The 26th of July movement had initially pitched the story to the New York Times reporter Ruby Phillips. They had told her that Fidel wanted to tell his story without the lies of the Batista regime. Ruby had turned down the opportunity as she was a supporter of the Batista regime and saw Fidel as a dangerous threat to the security of Cuba. She did recognize that it had the potential to be a great story, though, so she did pass the contact information on to the Times, and Herbert Matthews volunteered immediately for the job. In his report, Matthews described how easy it was for him to get around Batista's chief of staffs, General Francisco Tabernilla's supposedly impenetrable security ring. The failure to even keep a peaceful reporter out of a war zone hurt Batista's reputation and characterized his army as inept. Next to the glowing review of Fidel Castro and his guerrilla soldiers, it made it seem inevitable that Castro would gain ground against such a force. The timing of the publication was also very lucky for Fidel. After months of strict censorship, Batista had finally relented and lifted almost all censorship of the press mere days before the Matthews articles were published. 
If the articles had been published even a week earlier, then Batista could have drastically reduced their spread, but at that moment, he had no legal basis to stop the articles from spreading throughout all of Cuba. Fidel had recognized just how valuable the opportunity to win the American press to his side had been. He planned every stage of the interview carefully. He instructed his men to march in small circles around the camp to give the illusion that he commanded an entire squadron of soldiers rather than the dozens under his command. He had a high-ranking soldier interrupt the interview partway through to report that a message had been received from a non-existent second column, and he had staged his camp to look more formidable than it had ever been. Most importantly, though, was that the interview was with Fidel. Say what you want about the man's politics, but one thing that cannot be disputed is that Fidel was one of the most charismatic and charming people in the world. He knew exactly what to say to win someone over, and he used every tour in his repertoire to make Matthews his friend. A lot more could be said about this interview, and if you are curious to learn more, then I would point you to either Google Herbert Matthews Castro, where one of the top results will be a PDF of the articles so that you can read them on yourself, or if you would like a secondary source, then Anthony de Palma's book, The Man Who Invented Fidel, Castro, Cuba, and Herbert L. Matthews of the New York Times, is a great place to start. For our purposes in covering Che's life, it is just important to remember that the interview and publication of the articles is often pointed to as the turning point in the early revolutionary effort. It would help shape American perception of the revolution, and Matthews' insistence that Castro was not a communist and instead a supporter of democracy helped convince foreign policymakers to at least conceive of the downfall of Batista as a good thing. As the United States was one of the largest providers of arms and ammunition to Batista, this will play a large role as the war continues. The day after the interview occurred, on February 18, 1957, Fidel had reported to Che that Matthews had shown friendliness and didn't ask any trick questions. Fidel was confident that he had made a good impression and that soon he would have some good press headed his way. Fidel immediately set to work to capitalize on the momentum he was sure he would gain by preparing a manifesto that would bear the lofty title, Appeal to the Cuban People. He completed the work and provided the first copy to Celia Sanchez so that she could distribute it to the cities and throughout the island once she returned to her headquarters. The appeal was a combative piece with the type of language that captured Che's heart. In his diary, Che described it as really revolutionary. In the appeal, Fidel recounted their valiant resistance over the first 80 days of the revolution and described his ranks as steadily reinforced by the peasants of the Sierra Maestra. We, of course, know that at this time Fidel only commanded about 20 or so armed rebels, but Fidel wanted to present himself in a position of strength. One particularly powerful passage reads as follows. Why are we spilling our blood if not for the poor of Cuba? What does a little hunger today matter if we can win the bread and liberty of tomorrow? The appeal was a powerful piece of propaganda meant to recruit new members to the movement and in particular speak to the peasants of Cuba. The appeal, however, did not stop at simply asking for soldiers, as Fidel knew that was a tall order. Instead, he asked for shows of resistance throughout the country. He wanted to make everyone feel like they could be a part of the revolution, even if they could not trek through the Sierra Maestra or brandish a weapon. He preferred martial support, but if he was going to win, he would need all Cubans to embrace him. The appeal spread through Cuba slowly at first, but after the New York Times articles proved that Castro was still alive, Suddenly, the revolutionaries were front-page news, and the appeal was passed around like hotcakes as people attempted to understand Castro's purpose. 
The movement had finally broken into the public consciousness of the average Cuban, and for the first time, Castro seemed like a real threat to the Batista regime. The National Directorate meeting, the Matthews interview, the dissemination of the appeal to the Cuban people, and the spread of the New York Times articles represented the most important and most successful days of the early Cuban Revolution. When Frank Paz had departed the meeting, he had promised to send more guns and recruits to aid Fidel's fight in the Sierra Maestra. The proposed rendezvous date for the new troops was March 5, 1957. This made for an approximately two-week period in which the guerrillas needed to remain in a nearby vicinity and yet avoid detection by Batista's army, who were already combing the area for them. The strategy for the guerrillas was to move slowly throughout the area and take refuge in the fields or risk a brief stay in a peasant's home. On February 22nd, Che noted in his campaign diary that he had experienced his first symptoms of what would develop into a severe asthma attack. It was a particularly inopportune time for the symptoms to start as Che was without any asthma medication and the group were on a near constant march throughout the area. It is speculated that it was a combination of the rain and humidity that brought about this attack. The winter months in Cuba if a 73 degrees Fahrenheit, 17 degrees Celsius average can really be called winter, of December through March are typically the driest months of the year in the Sierra Maestro. Unfortunately for the rebels, even the driest months can still bring rather heavy rainfalls, and the rebels were soaked almost every night. This caused Che's asthma to worsen day by day. As you will recall, Che's doctors back in Argentina had advised him and his parents to attempt to live in dry climates to mitigate the climate's effect on his lungs. That is one of the reasons why it is ironic that Che found himself fighting a revolutionary war in Cuba of all places, as Cuba's humid and subtropical climate has resulted in a disproportionately high asthma rate. A 2015 study titled Asthma in Latin America found that 30.9% of the population of Cuba had been diagnosed with asthma at some point in their life. That was the second highest rate of all Latin American countries and over three times the rate of Argentina's 9.3%. The article further states that a full 9% of children in Havana under the age of 15 might have undiagnosed asthma, so the rate could be even higher. In reminiscence of the Cuban Revolutionary War, Che would famously describe the days following the onset of his asthma as, for me personally, the most grueling of the war, under the chapter heading, Bitter Days. The asthma was slowly growing worse, but as the rebels were only killing time as they waited on the pause reinforcements, they were at first able to march slowly to allow Che to keep up with them. A peasant by the name of Emiliano lived in the area, and while he was clearly scared by the gun-toting rebels, he must have sympathized in their struggle at least a little, as he would help when he could, and sent his son out to point out the safe walking trail so that the guerrillas would not get lost or inadvertently run into Batista's army. On the morning of February 28th, Hermes, the son, did not arrive as previously arranged. Fidel listened to the suspicion in his gut and ordered an evacuation to a post that overlooked the roads. Luis Crespo and Universo Sanchez were on watch when a large troop of soldiers were spotted. Based on their trajectory, it was believed the soldiers knew the guerrillas were in the area, and the soldiers were determined to occupy the crest of the hill and root out those rebels. With the soldiers' intentions discovered, Fidel ordered the obvious course of action, and the rebels started to run to the top of the hill, where they would be able to cross into safety on the other side. As they started to run, the sound of mortars and machine guns filled the air. 
For the time being, the shells and bullets were too far down the hill, but if they did not hurry, they would be overtaken. One by one, the rebels made it to the peak and crossed over, but Chase struggled with each step as his asthma flared. For a moment, Che almost gave up on himself as he waved the troops to leave him. Louis Crespo, though, had no time for Chase's fatalism or illness and shouted at him, You Argentine son of a whore! You'll walk or I'll hit you with my rifle butt! Crespo grabbed Che, and even though he already carried his own pack and gun, he helped to half-chain his pack forward. Together the two men heaved their way over the hill and into safety with a heavy downpour at their back. Even though Che could not physically breathe a sigh of relief, at the close call, I am sure he wheezed in relief. The run placed the rebels into a little-known area known as Purgatorio. A small peasant hut laid just ahead and the rebels desperately needed to get out of the elements and indoors to regroup. It was too risky to openly approach the hut as the disposition of the peasants to the movement was largely an unknown at this point in the war. Fidel decided a little ruse would be a safer tack for the time being. He approached the door and when the peasant answered, Fidel was introduced not as the revolutionary Castro, but as the Batista Army Major Gonzalez, with a cover story that he was searching for Fidel. The peasant had no choice except to invite what he thought were government troops into his home. Che followed Fidel inside, yet due to his condition could not really follow the conversation. After the close call on the hill, Che had failed to regain his strength. He and or his pack had been carried for the majority of the journey from the hill to Purgatorio. Fidel was faced with the hard truth that Che may not be able to continue without some kind of access to medical attention. Fidel was left with a decision between taking a gamble to secure the medicine or finding a place to leave Che behind while they waited out the remaining week before the reinforcements arrived. After Fidel met with Che, he realized the decision was not really a decision at all. Che's condition had deteriorated to a point that he would not be able to continue without putting himself and his compatriots at risk. Fidel formulated a plan that combined the two options. He dipped into his limited funds and paid a peasant to make a quick trip to Manzanillo to secure Chase some asthma medication. He then found a Guggero escort nicknamed El Maestro to remain behind with Che. Fidel could not risk his full force waiting with Che when the army was not far behind, and it was unknown if the peasant sent for the medicine would return with the medication or an army escort. Instead, a new plan was hatched that would have Che wait in the area until he was better. He would then return to the Diaz farm, which was the rendezvous point for the new Paz recruits. Once he had met the new volunteers, he would lead them into the Sierra to find and rejoin Fidel. This would have the added benefit of allowing Fidel and his troops to journey a little bit further into the Sierra and away from the army that was searching for them. El Maestro, which means the teacher, was, as described later by Che, a man of doubtful repute, but great strength. El Maestro was not exactly pleased with his babysitting assignment, but he was very determined to survive it. He was sometimes described as skittish, although the threat was very real. In many ways, the two men were like sitting ducks, as at times Che's asthma was so bad he had difficulty walking even ten steps. Che would describe in his diary how he spent twelve hours suffering with his asthma, clinging to his throat. He hardly slept as the labored breathing kept him from being able to relax. One day, while Che and El Maestro huddled in the jungle, less than 100 meters from the peasant's house, they heard the sound of the army's machine gun and mortars in the same bit of bush where they had spent the night before. Che observed his companion's tendency to nervously attempt to hide himself deeper into the jungle each time a noise was heard. 
It is a real possibility that El Maestro would have abandoned Che had Batista's men found their location. Yet, after two days of hope and fear, the peasant courier returned with Che's medicine. The peasant was only able to procure one bottle of asthma medication, but he brought it to Che along with some milk, chocolate, and some biscuits to help Che regain his strength. The medicine only partially relieved his symptoms, and the two men were forced to remain in the area another night, as Che was still too debilitated to walk. The next day was not much better, but it was March 3rd, and Che was determined to arrive at the Diaz farm by the March 5th rendezvous. It is hard to say who the day's march was more frustrating for. It took the two men an estimated five hours to climb a hill that a healthy person could have scaled in one. Che was frustrated by his mortal weaknesses that he had been fighting his whole life, and the healthy El Maestro was frustrated as a healthy man forced to walk at a snail's pace. That night, Che wrote in his diary that the day had been a day marked by spiritual victory and a corporal defeat. The trek from their hiding location to the Diaz farm should not have taken more than two days, and yet Che's weakness turned the march into a week-long affair. Part of the reason the march was so slow was that El Maestro refused to help carry Che's pack or him the way that Crespo had done. Che watched El Maestro closely as he suspected that the man might try to desert if he found his moment. At one point, Che even challenged him to do so, but El Maestro refused. It is possible that he feared doing so when Che was alert, given Che's reputation as someone who deals rather harshly with deserters. For some reason, the peasants they passed along the way were also non-responsive and unhelpful. It is unknown why, but it could have been the army's nearby presence, that the risk of helping two ragged men was not worth the risk, or that lacking Fidel's charisma, they just could not convince anyone to help them. After the long march, Che and El Maestro arrived at the Diaz farm five days late. Epifanio Diaz met Che as he approached and greeted him warmly before providing two pieces of bad news. First, the volunteers had not yet arrived. Second, Fidel's column had been surprise attacked at Los Altos de Moreno and split into two groups. No word had been received if Fidel had survived the attack. We of course know that Fidel survived, but this is where we are going to leave Che this episode in a place of uncertainty, waiting on the news of the late volunteers and worrying about the missing Fidel. Before we end the episode, I did want to complete El Maestro's story. Shortly after the two rejoined Fidel's forces, El Maestro claimed he was ill and left the guerrillas. He did, however, use the trek for educational purposes as he carefully studied Che. After he left the guerrillas, he dropped the name El Maestro and instead used El Doctor. It was an elaborate ruse in which he passed himself off as Che to local peasants in order to convince people he was a doctor so he could rape peasant girls when they came to him for medical care. After the revolution, Fidel was interviewed by the July 26 journalist Carlos Franchi, and he described El Maestro as follows. He was an orangutan. He grew a huge beard. He was also a born clown and carried loads as though he were Hercules, but he was a bad soldier. And he liked being a doctor more than being a teacher. What stupidity to pretend he was Che, in that area where we had spent a long time, where everyone knew all of us. And now, with the new beard, the teacher was passing himself off as El Che. Bring me women. I'm going to examine them all. Did you ever hear of anything so outrageous? We shot him. Fidel and the other leaders of the 26th of July movement usually did not discuss the executions in too much depth, but El Maestro was so bad that an exception was made. El Maestro's execution was part of several trials and executions throughout the revolution. Fidel at the time remarked, If we don't keep order in our liberated zone, the people suffer. Our revolution is tarnished. 
El Maestro was found guilty and met his end at the hands of the firing squad. Okay, thank you for listening to Aura of Greatness Podcast, episode 1.15, Making Headlines. Be sure to subscribe using your favorite podcast app, whether it be Acast, Podcast Republic, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or wherever you are listening to this episode. Until next time, cheers.